everyone and welcome back to Haunted History Chronicles. First of all, thank you for taking a listen to this episode. Before we begin, I just want to throw out a few ways you can get involved and help support the show. We have a Patreon page as well as an Amazon link. So hopefully if you're interested in supporting, you can find a way that best suits you. All of the links for those can either be found in the show notes or over on the website. Of course, just continuing to help spread the word of the show on social media, leaving reviews and sharing with friends and family is also a huge help. So thank you for all that you do. And now, let's get started by introducing today's podcast or guest. In today's podcast, we peel back the layers of time to uncover the riveting history myths, legends, and even spectral tales that have woven themselves into the very essence of a charming seaside town. Today we're embarking on an enthralling expedition into the depths of Watchit's past, where history, ghost lore, and folklore intertwine to create a tapestry of wonder. There's something enchanting about Watchit, and it's not just the picturesque vistas, or the salty sea breeze that rustles through its streets. It's a location with a treasure trove of stories. These stories, much like the town itself, are a delightful mix of heroism and dark deeds, courage and mythical happenings. How did this small coastal haven amass such an eclectic assortment of incredible, shocking and dramatic tales? Imagine sailing back in time, to an era when the Vikings held sway over the seas, leaving a wake of raids and pillaging in their path. Between the years 918 and 977, Watchit was repeatedly targeted by these Norse marauders, etching their legacy into the annals of the town's history. The remnants of Dawes Castle might now sit where the Saxon mint was once forged, a testament to an old age when coins were struck and kingdoms rose and fell. The year 1066 marked a pivotal moment in history with the Battle of Hastings. Amid the chaos, King Harold's mother, Eleanor, sought refuge in Watchet, plotting her escape to the island of Flat Home. Little did she know that this moment would be etched into the town's folklore, an unexpected brush with royalty amidst the turmoil of war. 1170 bore witness to a gruesome tale, one that echoes through the ages. Two local knights found themselves embroiled in the murder of none other than Sir Thomas Becket, the Archbishop of Canterbury. Fueled by a sense of duty, and perhaps taking King Henry II's infamous words, will no one rid me of this turbulent priest to heart? These knights committed an act that would stain their names forever. To atone for their deeds, their families took penance in the form of building St. Decuman's Church and endowing land to the Knights Templar. Flash forward to the 17th century, a time when brave Watchet sailor George Escott stepped onto the stage. Armed with nothing but a shovel, he faced off against a notorious pirate gang. The odds may have seemed insurmountable, but George's valour and determination prevailed. As he broke one of the pirates' arms and captured their stronghold on Lundy Island. 
It's stories like these that remind us that truth is often stranger and more compelling than fiction. A royal touch of whimsy came to watch it in the form of Queen Catherine of Braganza, the Portuguese wife of King Charles II. Charmed by the vibrant cloth produced there, she celebrated her delight by distributing spiced cider and hot cakes to the townsfolk. The memory of this regal gesture lives on in Watchit's heart and is marked by an annual celebration. The literary legacy of Watchit is equally captivating. Romantic poet Samuel Taylor Coleridge and his esteemed comrade William Wordsworth found inspiration in the town's cosy inns. It was within the walls of these establishments that Coleridge penned the rhyme of the ancient mariner, a poetic masterpiece that kick-started the English literary romantic movement. The echoes of these words can still be heard in the gentle lapping of the waves against Watchit shores. But it's not all tales of heroism and triumph. There's an undercurrent of tragedy too, as seen in the story of St. Decuman. This revered figure sailed across from Wales on a makeshift raft, accompanied by his loyal cow. Yet upon landing, his journey took him a carved turn when a zealous local decapitated him. Undeterred, St. Decuman calmly washed his severed head in a sacred well, reattached it, and won over the sceptical residents with his unshakable faith. Resurrection takes centre stage in yet another remarkable tale, this time involving Lady Wyndham. As she lay in the church, presumed dead, a sexton attempted to steal her rings. Inadvertently awakening her from slumber, Lady Wyndham's return to the realm of the living sparked confusion and disbelief. A story that echoes through the ages and solidifies Watchit's reputation as a town steeped in mystery. Listen along as we immerse ourselves in just a handful of these fascinating narratives with our special guest for today's episode. Bobby, the man behind X-Tours, offers a unique blend of historical exploration and paranormal investigation to captivate audiences, bringing history to life in spine-tingling ways. With a background steeped in history, heritage and archaeology, Bobby's passion has driven him to create immersive experiences that bridge the gap between the tangible and the supernatural. It all began with the Dunster Ghost Walk, an endeavour that seamlessly melds history and the paranormal. As a former Dunster Castle employee and a devoted paranormal investigator, Bobby's journey into the unknown has evolved into an exploration of the spectral side of Somerset and beyond. So prepare to be transported to a world where history and the ethereal intersect, where legends and hauntings intertwine. Join us as we journey through Watch It with our esteemed guest. Together we'll traverse the misty landscapes of time and unearth the stories that have defined Watch It for generations. As the threads of the past unravel, may you find yourself enchanted, intrigued, and perhaps even spooked by the mysteries that await. Hi, Bobby. Thank you so much for joining me again for another podcast. No problem at all. Thank you for having me on again. It's my pleasure. And we're going to be talking about a, a different area today, which is the area of Watch It, which is not too far away from Dunster, is it? 
No, not far at all. 10 to 15 minutes in a car, I would say. Do you want to just tell people a brief history of Watch It? Yeah, definitely. Well, it's um, a very ancient place. If you, uh, When you're approaching Watch It, you'll notice that the sign point out is an ancient harbour town. Um, you know, there is a, a evidence of ancient uh, settlements in the area. Uh, there's ancient burial grounds um, at Willerton um, and, like I say, surrounding the area. But the sort of history of Watch It really begins in the Saxon period. So that's when we know for a fact it was used as a, a harbour. Alfred the Great had a burr established there. Um, there was also a Saxon minster. And um, there was a coin mint there, quite quite an important coin mint that were carried on use into the Norman period. Quite an interesting fact regarding the mint there. So it's well recorded of how the Vikings was harassing the coast throughout the um, 8th century. And um, more coins that um, was minted in Watchet have actually been found in Nordic states. Uh, which shows, obviously, the Vikings' success when they was raiding the coin mint at Watcher, which I find pretty fascinating. That they've obviously, uh, Most of those have been found through metal detecting. So, uh, yeah, there's a lot of coins minted in Watcher to be found in the museums over in uh, Norway and Scandinavia and places like that. You wait, there's going to be people descending now upon Watchit with um, metal detectors. <laughs> in the hope well, they can find some loot. Great, you would expect more to be found around the area where the coin mint actually was, wouldn't you? But uh, no. But uh, to be honest with you, I think a lot of those coins would have been paid to, to the Vikings by the Saxons, you know, as a uh, payment to leave them alone, sort of thing. Yeah, which makes sense. It's got a run, really wonderful kind of mixture of history and folklore and ghost lore, like so much of our wonderful kind of country really you know these lovely wonderful places where you start dipping your toe into what stories they have to share and suddenly you are just discovering all of these different treasures these gems of of bits of legend bits of folklore ghost lore history events dark events funny events momentous events and it's really very much like a treasure trove and one of the one of the aspects that really, really has intrigued me when considering the history of Watch It is a particular account of possible premature burial. It's a discussion that I've had on the podcast before with an incredible guest, Sarah Blake from Hushed Up History, where we were looking at the nature of premature burial, um, accounts of premature burial, some of the folklore around it and, and attached to it. And the, the difficulty in trying to find absolute concrete evidence of that event with that particular person that it's recorded about. And through that discussion and through that research, and I've written about it and done various things on that topic itself, there is a name and names when it comes to what to watch it that have come up as part of that research. And I wondered if you just wanted to share your your kind of stance in terms of what you've heard and what you know about the premature burial of, of Florence Wyndham in this case? Yeah, so um, firstly, like you pointed out, yeah, it is a real treasure trove of uh, history, isn't it? When you visit the area, you see the quiet little quaint harbour town and uh, you don't think really historically much would have happened there. But uh, like you said, when you look into the history, you can be quite amazed really and taken back by the amount of uh, events that have unfolded in the, in the area. And, um, yeah, that particular one that you're referring to, including Florence Wyndham. So from the Wyndham family, which were historically a very important family in the area. 
Um, but this, yeah, the, her story goes back to the 1500s and um, it recorded how Florence Wyndham, um, she was mistakenly thought dead and she was placed into a coffin and left in the church overnight. Anyway, uh, the next day, I believe it was the next day, it was the evening before um, her burial was going to take place. And uh, the sexton of the church decided, um, you know, it's no use her being buried with those lovely gold rings on her finger. So he decided he was going to um, chop her fingers off and uh, take the rings and leave her buried that way. But to his surprise, she come around and woke up and uh, left him running when he tried to pull the rings off. Anyway, so she obviously, like I said, come around and uh, she wandered back to her home at Kentford Manor, which is not too far away from St. Eckerman Church, where she was due to be buried. A little addition to the story that somebody told me recently, actually, was how... Um, I knew she had to convince her family, or so the story goes, she had to convince her family that she wasn't actually a ghost and she wasn't dead. And um, the addition to the story that somebody told me recently was uh, uh, her, her husband was leaning out of her, uh, the bedroom window with a rifle, almost about to shoot her because he was convinced that she was a ghost. But yeah, there's other stories that say that she was already in the house cooking up um, eggs and bacon when her family members arrived. And it was at that point in time, she had to convince them that it wasn't a ghost in the kitchen cooking up eggs and bacon. But yeah, as I'm sure you're aware, if you've discussed it before, there is many different versions of the story that have been added on. I just recently, actually, I was reading about another story quite close to here regarding the Witch of Withycombe. Her name was Joan Kahn, and she also lived in the 1500s. I won't go into her story too much, uh, into too much depth today, but I was just going to point out, um, she... When she was found, after thought to be dead, uh, she was also found in the kitchen cooking up eggs and bacon. I don't know what it is with the eggs and bacon, but for some reason, um, they like to add that bit in. <laughs> I was just going to say, it's a rather strange addition to to have to both accounts, really. I don't know what that says, really, whether yeah, it was just um, very popular or... They were very hungry when they wrote it down. Yeah, or <laughs> something that was told over the dinner table, I don't know, or round a table with people gathering for stories i mean who knows i mean it's a very strange addition to have like i mentioned but it's a strange and like i say it'd be interesting to look into the psych psychology into why adding that certain aspect but i'm sure there's some explanation for it but i'm sure there'd be many different interpretations for it you know but it is a really 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 interesting bit of folklore just in general i mean the popularity of the story of the, you know, the lady almost at the point of burial or who has been buried, who somehow then revives at the point of yeah. being robbed in her grave by a sexton or a grave robber, somebody who's trying to take that ring off. But there are so many then variations of that account in terms of it slipping off, them having to cut her finger off in order to, to try and remove the ring, or they're about to cut the ring off. And then you have variations as to the response when she revives. In some stories, the sexton dies from fright. Yeah. In some versions, when she wanders home, it's her husband who dies from fright. In other stories, like you just mentioned, you have accounts of her returning home, this long journey to her home where her family refuse her entry because they believe she's a ghost so you have some kind of a confrontation with the husband refusing to let her in and then you have strange additions with the husband saying things like you know you can no more be alive than the horses breaking free from their stables and charging through the house and up the stairs and of course in those stories that's precisely what happens yeah um so 
there are so many variations of this particular account across England, across Ireland, across Germany, France, pretty much all the European countries. In this particular case, what is so interesting is that there is only one other case that I've come across where the family name, in this case, Wyndham, sees the century before another win, you know, another woman of the Wyndham family experiencing the same thing and having the same story attached to them. So in this case, we've got Florence, but then we have a Catherine Wyndham 100 years earlier who this story is also being added to um, yeah. what happened to her. It certainly adds to the intrigue, and it doesn't really tr help with trying to, like you say, establish a date for uh, when it really happened, if it really happened, or, and you know what of the story is actually true. Yeah. Well, it, it makes it it makes it really intriguing because it poses lots of questions. It makes you wonder if there is some kind of an element of a medical condition that maybe is attached to this line, this you know, this ancestral line. Yeah. Is it? Keeping something miraculous alive, maybe near death, at the point of near death through a, something like a coma or some some kind of state where they're very much non-communicative, non non-responsive, and then they have this revival and to keep it alive, to keep that memory of that event, which would have been very much celebrated and not understood, being medical understanding was very poor, is this something that's been exaggerated to make it stand the test of time? Well, before it's... I was aware of the earlier example, I, in my head, I thought, well, it's pro there's probably some truth to the story. And you, like you said, without the understanding of medical science, to probably in some sort of coma and assumed to be dead. Mm. Um, and much of the sort of romanticised parts of the story have probably been added over the years. But actually, uh, learning about the earlier example would probably add to the theory that, like you said, it could even be um, an inherited medical problem. I mean, you know, she could have even had really bad sleep apnea or something like that. And, uh, yeah. you know. I mean, it, it just it just adds more to the mystery. And, uh, you know, there are a lot of people that would dismiss that type of folklore. Well, it's obviously then complete nonsense because you can't have all of these examples and these cases of the same story in Germany and in England and in Ireland and all of these other places. But, but sometimes it's how folklore works, isn't it? Um, but there has to be some element of truth. And and this is where it, it becomes hard and it also becomes frustrating because you want that bit of evidence. But there is there are nods to some element of truth somewhere in the story. You know, if you if you take the example of, of Florence Wyndham, there's the pew, isn't there, which which points to this celebration of her of her. Uh, her, her kind of miraculous recovery but exactly so that was really interesting because i read about that in a, a book that's over 100 years old and uh i thought the pew end would be long gone but he pointed out in the book or the author pointed out that uh there was a pew end depicting florence windham giving her thanks to god uh for you know coming in her mind she'd come back to life and uh yeah this, this church is in sanford brett very nice little church well looked after and when I walked in, I was very surprised to see it was the second pew end on my left. And it was absolutely ama amazing. Uh, so it's obviously it's Florence Wyndham depicted there, giving her thanks to God. There's other really interesting details. Uh, a couple of other really interesting 
bit was two little mermaids at the bottom as well. Um, and I did actually look up what that signifies in, you know, that era in religion. And i got to be honest, it slipped my mind. Do you happen to know? I don't. I'd have to look it up, but I certainly will because, yeah, um, yeah I, it, as I say, it's such an intriguing mystery. And given that there are nods to elements of truth in these stories in these places, I mean, we can't dismiss gravestones that say, lived once, buried twice. We can't dismiss architecture on buildings, significant buildings and places in Germany that point to some kind of a resurrection experience of somebody within that area. We can't dismiss features like you've mentioned in this church, but it's trying to get to the nub of what it was that sparked that in the first place. And that's the really interesting historical element, I think, that you've got to try and strip back some of it to, to get to the heart of it. And whether it's ever possible to, given that so many of these records won't survive and um, may not have even been documented in the first place. But the story, however much exaggerated or not, points to some amazing event something miraculous whether it was something medical whether it was some example of premature burial which again we cannot dismiss given how rife that was and how much of a problem that was and how feared it was as well um does it point to something of that nature Who well, it's good, isn't it? because like you said i like the word you use because to us somebody in a coma coming around to us it's we, we understand that, whereas back then, it would have been an absolutely miraculous thing to witness, to have experienced, you know, to and they probably would have truly believed that God had brought them back from the dead. Yeah, and, you know, this is something that very much manifested all the way through until, you know, the late 1800s. I mean, if we, I can think of an example in Oxfordshire, you know, obviously near where I live, of a young woman and I've spoken about her on, a, on another podcast and I think I, I think there's a blog on a blog I wrote about her on on the website where yeah. she was basically without going into too much detail she was a very 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 young servant girl and she suffered a miscarriage not too early on in her pregnancy so kind of midway through and given that it was midway through there was an awful lot of speculation that this was something that she had deliberately done to abort the child and kill the child. There was also speculation that her pregnancy was the result of um, some kind of an affair or coercive relationship with the master of the house, who right. subsequently pushed for her arrest and her trial for murder. And he had a lot of influence with the judge. He had a lot of influence with the with many of the, the the kind of the noble, richer families in the area. And she was put on trial. And she had a lot of support, a lot of women coming to her defence, stating she'd had no idea of the pregnancy. Um, she was a well-off family. No, she was very, yeah. very poor. So we're talking, you know, very, very poor young servant girl, very early teenage years, pregnant, losing, losing her child early on, and then suddenly in a in in a court being accused of murder, and she was sentenced to death. She was found guilty by the court, and she was subjected to hanging, where she was declared dead, 
and her body was then transported for public dissection, as was the case for all those accused of murder who'd been found guilty and executed. And at the point of her dissection, she revived. And she was treated by the the surgeons because she was very, very unwell. Um, She was near death for several days. She couldn't speak. She could barely eat and drink because of the ordeal of being hung. There were pamphlets printed. It was it was very well documented. There was all kinds of news in of this revival in the press. Yeah, so that was very very interesting. Um, so I'm assuming that was sometime in the 19th century, was it? This was in the mid 1800s. I think it was something like 1840 something off the top of my head. Um, period. I've, I've come across quite a few examples of. I know it's very morbid, but of uh, unwanted babies being murdered mm-hmm. uh, and you know i've come across at least two examples uh, from the early 1800s and the baby had already been born and they was sort of sentenced to hard labor for six months and i forget what the other one was but she wasn't executed so it's interesting that the baby hadn't been born yet but she was still convicted of murder well i think that the speculation was that she had either done something to try and abort the child or this was certainly the rhetoric of the the master of the house, that she'd done something to abort the child or had done something to the child at the point of stillbirth um, when she delivered. Oh, I see. So the child was delivered, but just not alive. And like I said, he was very, very, very well-known, lots of connections. And so he pulled a lot of strings to get her... um, Right, yeah, yeah, I see. So he had the power behind him to be able to... Sure. She had a lot of public support. Like I said, there was an awful lot of people who came to her defence to say that she clearly had no understanding that she was pregnant. She was very young. Um, she had no idea that what she was experiencing was labour or pregnancy symptoms. And so, it, you know, it must have been quite harrowing when she received that that conviction. But what is really interesting, and it ties into what we were saying about you know, the miraculousness of how people would have viewed some kind of a revival was that at the point of her, we'll say, resurrection, Mm. she's about to obviously be cut up and dissected in front of a large group of audience of people coming to see that event. She could not be prosecuted again because the moment she revived, that was a sign from God of her innocence. And she could not be tried again because she'd already been hung. But also it it very much pointed to, well, this is God saying she is innocent. And so therefore, this is something that needs to stop. This This needs to end. She's innocent. And so her whole life changed after that, where she was able to go on, marry, have children of her own and live this very long life by all accounts and the records where you know, nothing else of any note really particularly happened. But it ties very much with what we were saying of, is this some kind of a medical thing whereby if they're very, very, very unwell and close to death, or their presentation is that they aren't exhibiting the things that you would expect from somebody who is alive, e.g. they're not eating, they're not drinking, they're not speaking, they're not moving. You know, those those signs that for the for the lay person, and again, bearing in mind, doctors didn't necessarily know the, the signs of death at this point. It was it was something very much not understood 
and very much a problem. You know, you have doctors having difficulty diagnosing death, let alone the person without any medical experience whatsoever. And so given that, are they looking at someone and thinking, to all intents purposes, they look dead to me. And so then suddenly when they do revive, when they do wake up and they do speak, that would have looked incredibly miraculous. And like from God, you know, something totally and utterly unexpected that that must be a sign from God, something special about this person, of course, which then generates some kind of a story about them. You know, no no doubt they would have been praying for her, you know, she was dead and they would have thought their prayers had been answered, essentially. But but just what you were saying a moment ago about that girl, one thing I don't think you pointed out was Florence was actually pregnant as well, wasn't she? Yes. She actually gave birth to a healthy boy two weeks after that whole event, so... But again, it's just, it's really, really intriguing. And the fact, like I mentioned, that she is not the only Wyndham where there is this this story attached to her. And like I mentioned, I can only come across one other example of that happening. It is really quite intriguing. And I think it just poses an awful lot of different, different questions. And the only other example I'm kind of speaking and referring to is the Edgecombe family, which is... In, again, interesting, given that they are usually more affluent families whereby this is attached to. So, yeah, just a really interesting element that I think really does deserve some discussion and thought and for people to be aware of, because it's a fascinating aspect of folklore and local history. And some of these key people who lived as part of this community all those centuries ago. And I think most of the original or the most contemporary sources regarding the event was printed on pamphlets, wasn't it, if I remember rightly? Yeah. And, you know, that would have been very much how they spread their news and, yeah. you know, the very much the popular way of spreading the news of, of any kind of significant event. When we're unlikely to have those pamphlets on record anywhere, for them to have survived would be miraculous. Yeah, um, any, you know, the... the the books that were written most contemporary to that may be based on on the pamphlet information but as you know i i, I think you've probably read the the longest original story it's quite long quite a lengthy story isn't it mm. so in my mind there's no question that the author of that definitely added some to the original information that would have been included on the pamphlet and um, those those editions are just as interesting because it's we've got know, the, more about the broader mindset at that time as well doesn't it it does i think it speaks to a lot of the fears around premature burial and the myths around death about what happens to you grave robbing fears you know these were very very significant problems we know this history tells us that this was a problem it wasn't something of their imagination and uh, you know those additions i in some ways it helps keep the story of that person alive and we've got to be mindful of the fact that if something did happen for those people of that period and that time it would have been significant people embellish and then it gets told and someone else embellishes and it keeps going and it keeps going and it's kept an element of what happened alive whereas if it was something totally and utterly ordinary and not special we wouldn't have any of this today still surviving it would have died centuries ago so the fact that these things still exist that there is this story still attached to Florence Wyndham 
and Catherine Wyndham, and then you know the Edgecombe family and, and various other families across Europe, speaks to there must be something somewhere at the heart of it. Whether you've got stories combining, whether you've got elements being exaggerated, whether there's something medical, what's true, what bits the bit that is made up and exaggerated, is going to be very difficult to tease apart and to understand. But yeah, it's it's a, it is a truly truly fascinating aspect of folklore, of history, of of like I mentioned, these local you know figures in the community, but also then to find and follow the trail of how it impacted on the community through architecture, through buildings, through things left inside those buildings. That's yeah, but you came, yeah, these were very, very real problems to people at that point, you know, grave robbing and things like that. Yeah. And you were pointing out about um, gravestones, Margaret buried once, buried twice. Um, and there's so much like, tangible evidence when you think about it, like, um, you know, the large tombstones they used to put on the top of tombs to try and stop people you know, the grave robbing, watchtowers and things like that. All of that comes from this period of uh, worrying about, like you said, having your grave robbed. And it also speaks to the the, the necessity of, they obviously wouldn't have wanted that to happen to them because their, their resurrection depended on them having a good Christian burial and their body being whole. And so this was a real genuine fear that their soul in the afterlife depended upon it. And so these stories, I think, were very much part of people's understanding and real genuine fears. Because again, history tells us so. When you've got, you know, peak family members staying for weeks after a burial of a loved one in the cemetery in order to keep watch over the grave of their loved one so that nobody comes and tries to dig them up. People don't just do that because it's a whim, you know. It, these were very real and present dangers. And so was the risk of, so was very much that risk of someone being declared dead, whether it was through a doctor or not, because again, let's be, let's be very realistic. If you lived in smaller rural communities, your access to a doctor was probably nil. Yeah. So we were dependent on someone else being able to say they are dead. Well, if our doctors of the day couldn't determine that easily, and we're using all of these different medical devices and contraptions to decide if someone was dead or not because they weren't sure, and even then accidents happened, we can understand how this was an ever real and present worry and fear. And well, they, they also they created that contraption, didn't they? For when they buried a body, they would uh, it was like to be able to listen in, mm-hmm. and for you a, had a couple of days they would listen in to check if they was knocking on the coffin. Yep, you had trumpets, you had things being rigged up to the corpse in case it, you know, they moved or sent up bells up on the top, which is where we get the expression "saved by the bell." You've got an array of different methods from the point of. The moment they died with pricking things like the toe with nails to see if it revived them. One of the most disgusting that I've mentioned before is the use of a trumpet being inserted in the rectum. I heard trumpet, I was wondering where he was going with that. The doctor would manually blow smoke through the trumpet into the bottom, hot smoke, tobacco smoke. Is that where we get that saying? Yes, blowing smoke up your... That's where it comes from because yeah, I, I think that was a more recent saying. Yeah, 
it very much stems from medical doctors devising these techniques to try and revive someone if they were possibly alive which again just speaks volumes as to how rich a thread of discussion fear real medical concern this was so yeah it's the psychology of the people wasn't it mm-hmm. one thing i find interesting about this as well though i mean um as with many cases it's interesting to think if that same event happened to just an ordinary person it, i mean it, there's no way it would be remembered because chances are it wouldn't have even been written down and I think that adds to the theory of the things being added on over the years, because like you said, they wanted to be remembered. Yeah. Then that begs the question, doesn't it? Like, did this really happen to Florence? Or did she see that that was a memory that people carried over from her ancestor and she wanted to be remembered the same way? Or is it a case of there was someone else in the area of Watch It who was found to have been buried alive, but their name wasn't significant yeah. to be remembered for it? But they also remember something about Florence where she was near death around the the time of giving birth, but survived. And that would have been miraculous. Childbirth was very much a killer of women in those times. So her survival would have been miraculous. And somehow over the, the centuries and that passing of time, those stories have come together. It's, again, it's the beauty and the mystery of history sometimes. Well, I think the more you think about it, the more you, your head just thinks, oh, don't you just wish you could be a Doctor Who and travel back in time and find out? Because I know it's it's the type of stuff that fascinates me because it people, it's their very real everyday experiences. Yeah, like you say, when you look into it more and you look at it from different angles, um, I always try and think of it from the perspective of the person at that point in time. And I think when you do that, you can try and understand how it affected the people more psychologically, which explains, I think, why these stories was believed and why they've been carried over mm-hmm. absolutely yeah. definitely but yeah that's that's something that very much was something that intrigues me and has intrigued me for a long time because obviously given how rare it is for a family to have a recurring example of this in their in their lineage like i said i can only i could only find one other example um which i've mentioned and yeah. so yeah, well, the other example wasn't a recurring one like the Wyndham one. It was pretty one. much, pretty much identical again from the century before. Same kind of things happening. There wasn't. I haven't come across any any reference to near childbirth, but again, the fact that you have just a hundred years before the same thing being added to a previous family, you know, matriarch within that family. Again, does it, what does it speak of? The fact that they're all women as well, which is interesting. Yes. Um, have you ever come across any other um, stories of people coming back from the dead from the sort of 15th century? Oh gosh, if you, there are there are I, a lot. There are a lot of examples, and what's if you really do kind of dig deeper into it, there are a lot of um, things that were kind of being written and pulled together at that time. Speaking of this, because. You know, you had documents being pulled together by scientists, by those responsible for the dead, really indicating how how big of a figure this this involved. And yeah, I mean, there are lots and lots of examples and records showing how many individual cases, you know, someone has experienced in their time, in their area type thing. Yeah. Sometimes it's like things like this, it's good to start at the very beginning, you know, try and find the earliest example or recorded example of something like this happening and see what um, details 
you know, are carried over. Because as you know, with folklore, a lot of the time details are carried over from the earlier stories and but something, something like that, it, it, as you know, it becomes an hard, you know, it does become harder and harder and harder to pin down because no. it's simply the, the the documents, the records, just stop. See, you know, they stop being recorded. They stop surviving. It, you know, these it would have been dependent on someone in the local area being able to document it to begin with, and if it was a small rural location the chances of that happening would have been much, much more likely to have not happened to begin with. And also, the, the, you know, that story has to get to somebody who thinks it's interesting enough to actually publish in a yep. pamphlet, because it wasn't just a little thing, was it, to print a pamphlet back then and distribute them and... No. Things like that. But like I said, given that we, you know, there are there are so many examples that this was a very real problem. I mean, just thinking about things like you've got William Tebb, who was the, the you know the great big burial reformer, who basically trolled through so many different cases and, and records of it, and just in a very short period of time, he was able to pull something together which highlighted how significant a problem it was. I mean, he he wrote about and, and put together a pamphlet, you know, showing that there were 219 cases of near live burial, 149 cases of actual live burial, 10 cases of live dissection, and two cases of awakening during embalming. And is this just, is this England? This was just in England. Yeah. And so only a very short amount of time. <laughs> so we're not yeah. talking about centuries here, we're talking no. just over a few years. And that's quite you know, eye-opening. Well, you kind of had me at 10 cases of live dissection. I'm thinking, how does that work? Um, do they start twitching and they think, oh, well, we've, you know, we're about to start, we might as well carry on? Or do they realise when they've already sort of, I don't know. The really gruesome thing is that um, in a lot of those cases, yes. I mean, we've got, to, we have to bear in mind that the, the need for bodies for the surgeon was a significant problem and this was a person who'd been convicted of murder that's why they were on their table and if they were at that point in many ways it was a way of finishing them off finishing off what had already been started on the scaffold when they'd been hung right, so they were due to be executed anyway yeah but so they just the carried on was he definitely criminal? Because obviously, um, I know I, I remember learning people even from almshouses in the work, well, probably more so the workhouses. When the new poor laws come in, it was um, part of law that I think, if I remember the quote correctly, it was to repay, repay your welfare debt, your body will be given to medical trial for dissection. It was the so originally it was it was just the criminal. So um, it started off with Henry VIII allowing the the barber surgeons. I think it was ten cases a year uh, maximum. And so you can imagine ten bodies a year for all of these surgeons was never going to go very far. And then when they when they made changes to the to the murder act, it allowed them to continue punishing the murderers beyond death. And so, therefore, they were denied burial. Their bodies were taken for dissection. And those convicted of murder and, and sentenced to death for murder were those 
who ended up on shire hall tables and in front of right. audiences for, the, for this process and when when things started to shift was again when you have well there weren't enough num- you know there weren't enough bodies even then and that was supposed to have been to try and help with grave robbing and resurrectionists but it, it didn't have the impact but they still weren't getting enough of the 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 bodies needed to have these dissections. So, of course, then you have the commodity of, of the body through poor houses where, yeah, they their body was also something that could be used for medical science. And it caused massive, massive uproar because, you know, for the, for the poor working person, it That's very right. clearly shows that the poor, the down and outs in society were fodder for the rich for these for these surgeons for the for the government to decide and, and do what they want with them even in death i mean let's be clear this was denying them the right to heaven by doing this their body with a hole is what they believed and so to them was, that was the worst thing that could possibly yeah. happen to them and, and it's mad to think this is just what like 200 years ago yeah um but it, it it resulted in riots you had doctors yeah. riots you had mobs it was known as the, I think it was known as the bloody, the bloody riot act, bloody riot, act, right, yeah, yeah, body right. act, or something like that. But it's what caused um, dissection to go underground. It was no longer done publicly, and it was done privately in, in you know, hospitals and surgeons, and out of the public domain because of that outcry, you know, that outcry of disgust. And so again, it, it shifted attitudes and changes in policy around dissection in this country because of the response from people who found it so boring. Imagine losing your job and being forced into the work. Or, you know, think if it, if it was today, you know, you fall on hard times and you've got to get to the job centre. Yep. And they say, yeah, OK, you can have your job centre money. But just so you know, once you're dead, your body's going to go off to medical science. It, yep. it doesn't bear thinking about. No, but, you know, like I said, we it, it just really does pay very starkly um, a clear picture as to what was happening during these centuries that we're talking about, that it was something very much being documented, being written about, being published in pamphlets, being written about in medical journals. And so, of course, it makes complete and utter sense that it's also going to be something spoken about in local communities. If Mary down the road has been near death, and then possibly revived or someone else where something of that nature happens. It, the reasons behind it would have been not understood. And I mean, I don't know if you remember not that long ago, but there was only recently the case of the elderly woman who revived at the point where she was almost about to be buried and was immediately sent back to the hospital where she sadly passed away a few weeks later. But that was a Yeah. And that was only a few weeks ago, and it wasn't a, you know, a third world country. We're talking about. It's a reminder of how much we take it for granted. You know, at least when we go, the doctors are hopefully going to be aware of the fact we're actually gone. Whereas a couple of hundred years ago, yeah, you're lucky whether you're actually gone or not. Yeah, yeah. and you know, it's been something that people have been trying to puzzle through and understand for all of that time and you know when you don't have all the answers you are simply hypothesizing aren't you you are learning you are you're experiencing as you go you're doing your best and all of these all of these stories and these 
things that we do have, these tangible pamphlets and documents, it's just the it's that that's the evidence that shows that pinpoints that there's some element of truth. It's just, as I said, trying to understand what it is. And certainly this case, especially with the connection of a previous family member, for me, I think possibly speaks of something medical. And yeah, and get and. and it made me think of, I'm trying to think specifically of his name, I think his name was Franz Hartmann, who about 1895, 1896, he created a pamphlet that wrote about being buried alive in the examination of the causes of that. You know, things like death, trance, cataplexy. And again, all of those things are things that we've spoken about. Somebody who is, you know, who looks asleep but they're yeah. not reviving. Um, so you can see that it was very much something being discussed and thought about. Where was he from, sorry? I can't remember off the top of my head. Uh, I'm sure his name was Franz Hartmann, and it was like 1895, 1896. But what's really interesting is his very real possible theories of medical understanding, like I said, mentioning things like cataplexy, cataplexy, you know, trance-like states, effectively coma he was actually using it to explain vampirism so oh, really? it, it, you know it was used to try and explain that phenomena so again you can see yes yeah well, I do you think some of this comes from you know uh, i suppose religion isn't so much in in decline at that early stage is it but thinking earlier when these sort of things would have happened like we've been discussing the only explanation in their mind would have been god's brought them back to life yeah so they, wouldn't have, they wouldn't have needed to look for other um explanations for what had happened it was just oh god's brought them back to life oh you know god must really love that person mm-hmm. whereas as you you know if you progress forward a couple of a few hundred years somebody with the mind frame of questioning religion a bit more might think actually you know this person isn't being brought back by god and this is what inspires people to go on and actually try and come up with other explanations for what's happening do you think that's what's the case with brands i i mean i think so i think i think we just have to be really mindful of the fact that everything was in its infancy and you know they are learning as they're going and they're only trying to find an explanation for something that is in the public domain something that is being experienced and you know we might laugh at the fact that his journal his pamphlet and he was a doctor he was a learned man was mm-hmm. being linked to cases of vampirism but if you essentially strip back what the the vampire of the 1700s 1800s was it's not the handsome sparkling vampire that we think of it's not the you know it's the Trans- transylvania no it's not the transylvania fucking <laughs> your blood at the neck those were not the accounts being documented of which there were a lot they were of family members pale returning from the grave trying to gain entry to their home repeatedly trying to gain entry to their home they could walk in the day they could walk in the night there was all kinds of superstition and things being reported about them. So is this so is this just more example of someone reviving from death, either having been buried or before they're being buried? So does that word vampire mean the same thing as it does to us now? Or was it a case of someone reviving from a medical condition? It makes sense. I never thought of it like that. Yeah, so essentially vampire is a 
a way of explaining the phenomenon of coming back to life. I mean, it's it's it's. It, I think it's a rational explanation for some of what was being experienced. Yeah, um, very interesting um, thought, definitely. But I think you know we're we're all too quick to laugh because some of it oh, seems yeah, yeah. so far fetched, and so do tales of. Come on, someone reviving in the ground in the in the earth? No, surely not. But actually, if you look at it, history tells us these things happened. There is documented cases. You only have to look at grave sites where they've uncovered bodies, where there are nails still embedded underneath what would have been the, you know, the toenail pointing to the fact they were checking to see if that person was legitimately dead. There is, there is strong evidence of bodies moving in the ground in the corpses that's been discovered when those sites have been excavated, which very much points to the fact that they did not go into the ground dead. Yeah, and uh, um, quite a scary thought, isn't it, really? It is. But again, to us, it seems so far-fetched. But given, like I mentioned, there is only this very recent example, is it so far-fetched that 200 years ago, 300 years ago, when they didn't have machines and gadgets that you could hook up to the heart? that would detect minute heartbeats. Yeah, in, a way, in a way, it just shows um, how we, how much we do take our, you know, understand of medical science for granted because people, like you said, will laugh it off because they're so unaware of the fact that this was truly in the minds of people back then. Mm. You know? I mean, we know that there are circumstances where the body can slow down and mimic death. We know that. So of course, for someone who who doesn't have the same understanding of medical science, it would have precisely looked like death. But yeah, it's it's truly, truly fascinating. I would suggest that if people are interested in it, to take a take a listen to that earlier podcast with Sarah Blake, where we examine the the Marjorie McCall case from Ireland, which is the gravestone, and then we look at some other cases and we tease apart some of that folklore because there was a really, really interesting study done in Germany where they identified how many regions, how many towns this story existed in. And when you see that, it's fascinating. But then to see how many of those locations, there are examples of architecture that sign, you know, that signals that story, again, fascinating. So yeah, it's a really broad, big topic, but it's, what does it say that it also pulls in small places like Watch It? You know, (laughs) I think, Well, I was just thinking, like, so why is it that there were so many cases at that specific place? Was it because they had a better understanding of it? Do you think, or no? I think I think it probably I think it probably speaks to there must have been uh, somewhere an example of premature burial that really was significant that did the rounds that was then shared from place to place. It would have spread like wildfire. So then that case that was probably genuine from one area, from one place, or maybe a couple of places, suddenly then springs up in this town, in this village, in this town, in this village, in this town, in this place. And it it gets attached to people and, and where it stems from gets lost. But because it becomes so synonymous and well known with that location, you then get the architecture springing up to to kind of speak of this history that's been talked about for 200 years or 100 years or 150 years or whatever it is. And there it is as this this signal to this event. But does it mean that the event happened there? 
or 80 miles down the road somewhere else is the bit that's very hard to to point you know to really get to the heart of and, and point to but I think it's just evidence that clearly something happened somewhere and then it's spread massively yeah. very quickly and very and where sorry remind me where was that example so that was Germany yeah in Germany yeah it'd be interesting wouldn't it to know if they both occurred as completely separate instances or somehow influenced each other yeah I mean it was it was done by um I think it was done in 1920 where they found eight examples. So eight, 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 zero. Oh, wow. so eight examples across different locations of this story and and elements of this story cropping up in that in that town or that village. And something like nineteen or twenty then examples of the architecture of the horse on significant buildings pointing to the story. But yeah. It was a really big bit of research by an ethnologist, I think in 1920. So yeah, it's, it's, it's something that is, has intrigued many other people interested in this aspect of history, but also this aspect of folklore, because it speaks to an awful lot of experience of the everyday person, their fears, their experiences, also what was happening medically, scientifically, what was happening in terms of burial changes, yeah, and premature burial. Yeah, I think, um, I'm sure you, like myself, it really adds to these stories in general, uh, having that tangible evidence. So it's not just words and stories, but to actually see a gravestone marked, buried once, buried twice, um, it really adds to the story, you know. Very much so, yeah. And like I said, those are sometimes all that you have or the pew in the church. It's all that really does remain that's a physical um, nod to there being some kind of an element of truth. But it's things like that that I think, again, if you're, if you're visiting those areas or visiting that part of the world, is the stuff that you want to try and find because that's the really interest, you know, some of those are the really interesting elements, the unknown elements, aren't they? Well, yeah, I mean, <laughs> this story you know whether it was based on that earlier example that was a hundred years previous as far as i'm aware the only part of tangible evidence related to that story is that un yeah so uh, yeah to me uh, it's fascinating and it really is worth seeing but you know there is like like i mentioned at the start watch it has so much incredible history so many legends and bits of folklore you know one of those other nods to that is something that we talked about on the previous podcast which is the connection with with Mother Leaky. So again, if people haven't listened to that, that would be a good one to start with because you went into that in a bit more detail. But what is the connection with Mother Leaky and her ghost and, and watch it? Do you want to just remind us of that briefly? Yeah, so like you said, obviously we mentioned her connection uh, to Dunster last time, but um, the sources that I've come across that relate her to watch it, they're essentially, uh, so before they got the key and the the harbours that you'll see in place at Watch It Now, they had um, quite a number of, sort of wooden breakwaters and uh, many, many of them was destroyed over the, over the centuries, you know, from the 1700s leading into the um, sort of late 19th century. And uh, yeah, I come across quite a few sources where um, Mother Leakey was to blame for those storms. So I think I mentioned to you before how uh, it said it would stand on Minehead Harbour with a whistle coming yeah. up storms and destroying ships. And her um, son blamed her, didn't he? <laughs> yeah, so her son, yeah, apparently he was he was to blame for his bankruptcy and for killing her own grandchild. Uh, 
infamous woman. Um, yeah, because if you're a nice lady in life, you wouldn't expect so much. But that's the bit that we talked about last time, you know, again, kind of like we were talking about with, with Florence Wyndham. Why is it that some of these stories get told and, and remembered and shared? What is it about that person that makes them special enough that their story doesn't disappear? And there must be something about Mother Leakey in life that meant that her story deserved being preserved. Whether yeah, it, being remembered. Whether it was she, there was something that she did maybe that was a bit dubious, or maybe it just was that she she was just such this a, a wonderful, kind-hearted woman. So they turned her into some villainous character to remember her. Who knows? But the fact that she yeah. has so much ghost lore around her is fascinating across multiple different places too. Yeah, and it, maybe it could be a combination of of all of the above. You know, maybe yeah. it could could have been a story that was created to be a nice thing and that's why it's pointed out in the sources that she was a nice person in life mm. but then perhaps there was somebody who didn't like her quite so much and pointed out the not so nice aspects of her you know for example uh, kicking the doctor in the privates and things like that which is comical but again yeah. this, is, this is the kind of the local story the local myths legends folklore ghost lore that is so fascinating and watch it really does have an abundance of Before we head back to the podcast, if you haven't already visited the Haunted History Chronicles Patreon page, now is the perfect time to join, to listen and enjoy a multitude of additional podcasts, merchandise, mail and other written materials. It's a great way to support the podcast to continue to grow and put out additional content, to share guests and their stories, as well as helping the podcast to continue to be enjoyed. You can find the link in the episode description notes, as well as on the Haunted History Chronicles website. And remember, you can always help support guests in the podcast by coming and liking the social media pages and chatting over there. It's truly all very much appreciated. And now, let's head back to the podcast. I know you... um... I'm, I'm sure you have plenty, but there's a really fascinating one, isn't there, about a saint from St. Wales. Do you want to talk us through that one? Because, again, it's a really interesting example of precisely what we've been talking about when it comes to Watch It. Yeah, definitely. So um, uh, when I do the Watch It Ghost Walk, one of the first uh, areas we get to is this, on, on the corner there, there's a, a little pebble mosaic. It's not that old. It dates from 1994, but it's... Um, really interesting nonetheless and it tells the story of St Decuman so um, it's who, it, who the church is um, at watch it is de- dedicated to and uh, like you said he was from South Wales and he came over in the 7th century and um, it said that he came over on a small wooden raft and there was another raft in tow with his um, cow and he actually so the story says he suckled on this cow on, the, on his voyage over to sustain him and uh, when he landed at what the locals wasn't too fond of him and unfortunately unfortunately decided to cut his head off but it wasn't a problem for St Decuman you know he was a magical saint and uh, he wandered up to the uh, well that can still be seen at St Decuman's in Watch It Now and he made use of the holy water there to re-establish his head and seeing this magnificent feat the locals actually grew quite fond of him after that and uh, yeah (laughs) yeah I mean, I'd just be pretty impressed as well, to be honest. But again, it kind of it it comes back to what we were saying in in the podcast that you were on before, when looking at Dunster, 
these are these wonderful stories, myths, legends, and the explanation that they have for certain things is just so fascinating in and itself of this, in many cases, these very early historical points. Yeah, I mean, as you're aware, you know, he come from a period known as the Dark Ages, you know, after the Romans had uh, left England, uh, so-called the Dark Ages, because there's not very much written history. Mm. But I mean, uh, St. Beckerman was from that period. Uh, St. Karanpok, uh, uh, who I'm just at the road, who I think we mentioned on the Dunster one, he was from that period in history. So the history's there, it's just you've got to search for it and um, try and divide the myth from the actual facts, you know, which can be very difficult, but there's so much written about these figures and these saints and the events that happened in their life. There's got to be some truth in the story. Absolutely. Yeah. Again, it's it's that it's been kept for a reason. And again, the difficulty is being able to tease apart fact from fiction, for you know the the myth from the real stuff. And that's because it's so old. It's so very, very old. And most pe- most people were not literate, so they wouldn't have been able to document it. No, and I think a lot of the re- like you said, they was illiterate. They wouldn't have been able to document it. And I think a lot of the reason these stories have survived is because of their background being religious stories. Usually, they would have told some sort of message. For example, the one before when we spoke about Saint Karanatok uh, and the serpent. Yeah. You know, that's like symbolising. Uh, uh, God's defeat over evil in some aspect. And that's why these stories would have been carried over because they would have been spoken in churches over the centuries. And then at some point in history, they, they was written down, at which point much has been added, uh, romanticised very much. But that doesn't take away from the fact that it was based on that original story, you know. Yeah, they've become they've become become something that's been used for more, you know, a moral lesson, if you like, something to remember for that reason and being used for those purposes. But something is at the heart of it that warranted writing it down in the first place. And yeah, it's just, it's again, the really exciting bit of history, understanding the key figures and the locations, the places, all of how it's come together in this perfect melting pot and still then stays that the, the memory, the echo of that still stays in that area somehow whether it's through story, whether it's through folklore, whether it's through something in a church, whether it's through something that's been documented and actually preserved. It's the remnants of the stuff that, that was there right at the very beginning when it happened. And that's so exciting. Incredible. Really is, yeah, because, very. You, know, you go to watch it now, and it, like I said before, it's a very quiet, quaint little area. And... Uh, it, it, it boggles my mind to try and imagine what that area would have even looked like when um, St. Deckerman was there. You know, it was a whole different aspect, uh, environment entirely. Yeah. But, you know, you say this was such a quaint, beautiful little place, but kind of like when we were discussing Dunster, these these places, I mean, like so many other places across England, you saw some incredible incredibly dark momentous bits of history played out when we think of when we think of history and we think about the big moments in history we think about how they impact on larger places and larger communities but history plays out for everybody it plays out for the common person so it's something experienced in very small rural leafy 
picturesque parts of the world, as well as bigger locations, bigger towns and cities. Um, you know, just like everywhere, human nature is human nature. So you have some incredible accounts that, you know, signify so many things about the people and how in many ways we still haven't, you know, done much evolution, we haven't changed much. But they are really important records to, to not forget because, again, they tell us about human human nature, human life. They remind I, us they were still human beings, you know. They exactly. might have been 200 years ago, but they were still humans. They still had a brain that they used to think with, same way and we it, do today. And I think it's our connection to them, you know. It reminds us that we aren't that different. We may have this great spance of time between us. We may dress differently. We may live differently. But actually... In essence, we are still blood and flesh in the same way. And many of the same motivations and issues and, and things that happen still happen today. Yeah. And I know that one of the one of the aspects of Watch It that's really interesting that you you've done a lot of research about, and I know you've written about it for, for the blog, is the account of this really, I mean, it's the really peculiar twisted tale of basically trying to tarnish someone's name to have them convicted of a crime and executed. And really, really, really fascinating. Do you want to talk us through that account briefly? And like I said, I know it's on the blog. So for people who want to have um, the chance to read into it a bit more detail, do you want to to tell us about the, the parish curate? Yes, definitely. But no, it is a fascinating story from the uh, 1600s. Uh, we, we've obviously been talking about uh, pamphlets and things like that. And uh, what's really interesting with this one is there is a pamphlet from the 1600s that describes this story. And uh, yeah, basically, uh, Mr. Trapped, his name was, and he was a curate from Old Cleve. And he, he fell out with a few of the locals. Um, by all means, I won't go into too much detail because we could be here for ages to, uh, talking about this one. But if anybody wants to read more details, we all mean to have a look at the blog. But um, yeah, he fell up with some locals and uh, there was various, uh, uh, let's say, aggrievances between the two of them. And uh, at one point, Mr. Trapp's wife actually died as a result of drowning. He was down at the beach and the tide came in and she couldn't escape. And uh, she died as a result of that. Now, the people that Mr. Trapp had fell out with, they tried to use this as an, as an excuse to really tarnish uh, his character, but it didn't work. Uh, something else they tried, so, so someone from the group decided they were going to break into his house and nick his uh, curate clothing and go wandering around and basically um, harassing local ladies with the intention for those ladies to go and um, report that to the authorities. Um, when the authorities have the description of Mr. Trapp's clothing, they thought that would do the job, but that didn't work either. Anyway, um, it was when Mr. Trapp was actually... Um, who created the curate that uh, it was sort of the uh, the last straw for this group that really did, wasn't fond of him whatsoever and uh, yeah they unfortunately decided to murder him and um, it was quite brutal they actually I don't think they had fully th thought it through looking at the sources that I've got regarding this event which certainly imply they hadn't thought it through because they had, had done the murder and then it was as if they were trying to decide what to do next and they actually um, took Mr Trapp's body back to Mr Trapp's house and uh, cut it to pieces, disemboweled his body uh, in Mr. Trapp's very own bath. And then they sort of thought, okay, what do we do now? And um, the only thing they could think of was to try and ram all of these bits of body into some earthenware jars that was uh, in, the, in the building. 
So they've done that and they was able to get rid of many of the jars um, and they did use a big pot as well which they filled with much of the blood from Mr. Trapp. Anyway, obviously the authorities some time after this event really uh, knew what was going on and was searching for Mr. Trapp and uh, they sort of had an idea that it was this gang that um, had the problems with Mr. Trapp and uh, they was actually questioning this gang at Mr. Trapp's house and it was when one of them picked up or was asked by one of the officers there to pick up the pot of blood. He uh, purpose, purposely spilt it, you know, pretended it was an accident. And apparently it was that what really gave them away. And uh, yeah, they ended up in court and uh, yeah, ended up being executed for it. Yeah, which comes back to what we were talking about earlier. You know, these people, if they were found guilty for murder, that's what happened to them. I mean, yeah. execution was a very common offence for an awful lot of crimes, not just murder. There was like 260-something offences of which you could have been hung for. So it it was a common punishment for, for very minor, well, for things that we would consider very minor today, but for then were very significant in the eyes of the law, in terms of the elite, but also common people like farmers and things where it would have had a significant impact on their livelihood. And so, yeah, crime and punishment is a really interesting aspect of this history, of this, you know, this part of history and yeah. the local history. So something like that, an account like that is really fascinating to understand, beginning to end what happened and how it played out. But also the wider implications of crime and punishment. And, you know, last time we were talking about the men being led over the bridge in Dunster and how significant something like that would have been. But something like this really would have been significant as well it would have it would have been very memorable to the people in the community crime and punishment would have been something that had such a significant impact on the people of the day watching it play out if they were involved if their family was involved and so on and so forth and i and i do think that's why we often then have things that stay and are act as reminders of some of these changes in these pivotal moments in that kind of part of the history books if you like and I again I know that Watch It has similar nods to this aspect of history and there's a really fascinating contemporary rhyme isn't there when it comes to punishment and changes in punishment in Watch It um, that I, I don't know if you can you can speak of and go into a bit more detail. Yeah, I think the one you're referring to is the one that comes from the Enclosure Act. So, yeah. Uh, the Enclosure Act came around in the 1700s. Um, prior to the Enclosure Act, you've got much common land that's being used by many of the people uh, in, a, in a said area. And then uh, so after the, uh, that act was brought into place, basically a lot of land was being parceled off and sold to the highest bidder, essentially. And, uh, you know, as you can imagine, as with the crime and things that like, you've just been mentioning, this would have had a massive impact on people. Uh, their livelihood depended on this land and all of a sudden, within a click of the fingers, it was taken away from them because people with more power and more money than them was able, you know, was able to do so. Um, but the rhyme that you're um, referring to, if I remember it correctly, the law locks up the man who steals goose from the common but leaves a greater villain loose who steals the common from the goose. So uh, yeah, that, that's a contemporary rhyme from the late 1700s, which, uh, I think it's fascinating. I think it's volumes about the uh, the mindset of people during that period and how it affected them. 
Well, don't you think it speaks to some of the things that we've mentioned? Because it's really basically saying that, you know, the rich can steal something from, you know, away from someone effectively yeah. and they can get away with it. But others can't. So it's kind of this one rule for one and one rule one rule separate from other people that someone else can get away with something really quite heinous whereas the common person can't um and so i think it really... there's that aspect but it's also taking away something that was theirs isn't it, yeah, it one is. yeah they're, they're they're actually getting away with things that they're not allowed to get away with but they're also i mean you could like literally as they worded it uh, they've used the word steals mm-hmm. um and i think they felt like it was stolen from them because they worked it they owned it they lived on it but you're right it it could be snatched away from them stolen from underneath them simply because they had the money and the power and the position to do so and yeah it just speaks very much of the the class system and the attitude around what people could do in, in your position in life if you were lower in status um, yeah. that you could well, have everything well, like, a lot of people were living in poverty as it was and uh, it wasn't just their animals and their farmland a lot of this common land was used for fuel okay. uh, they needed this wood they depended on it to survive and uh, all of a sudden huge waves of woodland was being taken away from them and they had no fuel it would be like us today all of a sudden having no electricity literally mm-hmm. you know but uh, I think the fact that they use the the idea of the goose for the rhyme I think is very telling it's very revealing because it's basically a source of food and what that what is effectively being conveyed in that rhyme is you are taking away the things that sustain us you are robbing us of the things that give us the ability to thrive Um, because this land would have been the land where they lived they were able to grow what they needed to survive maybe work that land and so, and all of this stuff and all of a sudden you know the local lime kiln they would have used was being taken over and paid rent on and things like that and bear in mind that they would not have received any recompense for this they would have literally just been out on their ear <laughs> it's that simple yeah. it's not like today know. where you know they had no rights essentially and their common land was gifted i think at that point in time it was still based on like not necessarily ancient charters, but much older sort of royal charters that allowed uh, common people to have a certain amount of land for their animals and their livelihood. But yeah. But yeah, I just think it's a fascinating rhyme that speaks so much in terms of who they perceive as some of the criminals in this, you know, in this part of the world and society in general, and who can get away with things and who can't, and how it's always the the poor person who tends to suffer at the end of it um and it's really revealing i think in terms of how harsh life could be and easier in some in some ways if you were someone of position and note and society yeah 100 percent. and i also think it speaks volumes about the change in mentalities of people it also signifies that they're going through a period where all of a sudden uh they're in a position where anything they all is theirs can be taken away from them you know with the industrial revolution it very much was the case kind of coming back to things that we've spoken about in this podcast in the previous one it is those periods of change of something significant happening that people because they weren't literate let's be honest most people were not able to write these things down 
they told them in ways that were significant and meaningful for them. And that's storytelling, it's song, it's 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 these remnants of those events that's that sometimes last, thankfully, that point to this was something that they were enduring, that they were having to to survive being done to them. You know, I think if anybody had someone suddenly coming in and taking away their home, they would have an awful lot to say and they'd be writing to the press in their local council office, local MP, parliament, whoever it is, wherever you are in the world, you'd be making a real stink about it. Yeah. But what could these people do? Not a lot. And this is another reason, though, we're lucky that things like this have survived because something I really love with history is looking at history from the bottom up, you know, mm. uh, from, from the real people at the bottom of the food chain, let's say. Um, and unfortunately, not a lot survives for one reason or another. It could be because, like you said, the majority were uh, illiterate. But thankfully, these rhymes have survived. Um, and I guess they've just been passed down with oral history. And then at one point in time, somebody's had the... Um, the appreciation of the importance of the history of it and wrote it down, you know. Yeah. And that's why we've got it today. Absolutely. And and again, I think that's the really magical aspect that, that, you know, these things, the fact that they have survived, should continue to survive. We should know about it. We should celebrate it. We should talk about it because they're really revealing. And... Definitely. In this example, you've yeah. got you've got words that signify how traumatic it was, how difficult it was, how it stripped them of the things that they needed to to survive, to thrive. And you could dismiss it as a really nonsensical rhyme that means nothing, but actually, it means so very, very much. I mean, just think about the person behind the words in that rhyme, the people you could that it affected. Based on that sentence, can, yeah. Like you said, it signifies so much more. You just need to look at it from a different angle. Yeah. Um, and it's funny, I, I always try and use quotes like this in contemporary um, uh, quotes, uh, doing my walks and things like that. And I always get excited about this one because I really love it. And I love the idea of telling other people, but nobody seems to share that excitement. And I think that is for that reason. They're mm. not looking at it from the perspective that I appreciate it from. They're looking at it with their modern eyes and it's just, oh, you know, a little quote that doesn't really mean anything to them, but it signifies so much more. Absolutely. We've just kind of been thinking about a moment of change and you mentioned some, uh, you know, a different period of change, which is um, something that very much impacted Great Britain, but all parts of the world, which is this huge industrial shift and industry booming, different types of industry, groundwork for, for things like railway lines being set up to boost transportation and, and businesses and transport and freight transport and so many other things when it comes to industrialization, which very much impacted people at local level and communities at local level. And, you know, Watch It is no no different to that, really, because you've got changes coming through in this, again, quite small, rural, leafy community of railway lines being being brought in and that again it would have been something very significant for the community in terms of impact on trade on ability to take things to market local businesses travel work jobs you know this this would have meant that this was a community that suddenly started growing and expanding 
as a result of this addition coming into the local area. Yeah, 100%. And, um, you know, they had the mineral line there, which brought the coal in from the Brendan Hill, which was established in 1857. Um, and it's amazing when you go on to the um, harbour where the lighthouse is today at Watchet, there's a Thankfully, they've preserved a small part of the mineral line that um, actually extended all the way onto the harbour and um, allowed them to actually use hydraulics to literally tip the carriages that was full of coal directly onto the ships. So, you know, just previous to this, they would have been bringing the coal, the coal, sorry, the iron ore down on um, carriages from the Brendan Hills, and they would have literally had to load it onto ships by hand. So you can imagine what a game changer it was to be able to bring that down all the way to the ship and just literally tip it onto the ship. Yeah. And then it would go from there straight over to South Wales. And to me, I see that ship kind of an ex- as an extension to the um to the railway line because it would have just it was like a triangular system. Mm-hmm. The ore would go over, they would uh, smelt it over there, stuff would come back, and it was just a constant system. Yeah, it's, it's amazing. And like you say, you wouldn't really expect it looking at the small little town. Uh, no, but there are real nods to different aspects of life and industry and business. I mean, there's a real maritime and sailoring kind of nod, you know, being out at yeah. sea, but then this real industrial kind of nod and engineering nod and and boom in this sense of around that. Like you've got the um the hobblers. I'm not sure if you've heard of the hobblers before. I haven't, no. They're very interesting. So the ho- they was initially known as the hovelers. So uh, it's basically groups of people that would help to uh, guide ships into the harbour. Yeah. And in, in Watchit, there was a number of small groups and uh, they realised by the sort of mid-1800s that rather than uh, work against each other, they would be better off creating a a, um, a group. And that was where the hobbler comes from. And they established a, a sort of a hobbler society in Watchit, which I think is quite interesting. And again, that stemmed from that industry. Mm, fascinating. And yeah, again, it's just really interesting these these words, these the root words, the etymology of these words, and where they come from. Because so often today they change to something else and they're used for other things. But to see what they were originally and the source of them originally is always fascinating. And again, the impact on the community, you know, at community level, um, that there was a need for this for them to to kind of to, to have to do that really. To that was their job. Yeah, this is what I try and tell people. It's the same with the Dunster one, you know, as in watch it. Um, it's quite easy to walk up the harbour and assume that it's always been that quiet. But actually, you know, I, I have to remind people that just 200 years ago, just under 200 years ago, there was there would have been trains coming through this very spot. There would have been groups of men hurling iron ore from the carriages onto the ship. There would have been ships up and down. I, I remember reading, I think the biggest thing that was landed off a ship in watch it was a 150-ton boiler. Yeah. used in the paper mill there you know that was huge but it really does signify how much has shifted in some ways in terms of of life in these communities and the types of industry that we had then to what we have now and i think most people kind of have can recollect in the, say the last 50 years some of those changes but go back even further and you can really see the origins of them and this very much this booming trade of all of these things this the busyness around it and yeah 
playing out in small places like Watch It with waterways absolutely teeming with ships coming in and working, transporting things, bringing things in, having things being put on their ships and taken elsewhere. And likewise, trains being used to, to transport these goods around the country in different places. And so, yeah, it's 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 something that we tend to think of as only having been around in, say, the last I don't know, 50, 60 years in the de- demise of it. But history is really quite vast. It goes back much further. Um, it does, whether yeah. It, yeah. The origins were very humble, like you mentioned, of people having to do it by hand and then by simple carriage and horse cart. Then that kind of movement towards boats, steam locomotives, you know, you can see that evolution and then the decline of those over the last 50 or so years, which... Yeah. yeah. Well, like you said, it goes that much further. I find it really interesting when I try and explain to people, for example, at Dunster, when they had the harbour there. Well, for a start, people find it very difficult to even imagine Dunster had its own harbour. But secondly, you try and explain to people that in the 1400s, uh, ship was leaving that harbour for France, Spain. You know, it, it wasn't just connected to Wales over the channel. It was connected to the much wider world. Yeah. And that was going back for over 500 years, which I find phenomenal. But I do, I've got to say, I do understand why people can't really appreciate it because it's really hard to imagine. You know, when you go down to watch it, it's very hard to imagine. Because that it's industry. so quiet now. It's so, yeah, it's so, it's so underused in the way that it used to be used. And let's also be honest and, and try and remember that these, you know, where you have that connection with water, and the wider world, there is obviously also the very real threat of invasion. And so just as a kind of a focal point, these were positions that were kind of of note to be mindful of and to be watching out for, because it was a it was a routine of people trying to gain entry into your local settlement. So if you go back even further, these were places that were safeguarded or watched and where you would have battles and skirmishes and and people trying to come through into. So they've had such significant parts to play in our histories. They're just very quiet. So it's that yeah, they shift. Are. It's interesting to say that. I mean, there's a um, there's a map from Spanish Armada period, and that shows, it's either Watch It or Dunster, but it shows the harbour there with some ships in, in the harbour, which I think is amazing. Shows the importance of it. Um, also, we've got Dunkery Beacon, uh, and it's believed, if I remember correctly, that that was first established as a beacon during the threat of the Spanish Armada. Yeah. You know, um, and all of these little things, you know, now every time I go to Dunkery Beacon, I can't help but look out and imagine I'm seeing the Armada coming towards me and I'm the one lighting the beacon, you know. Luckily, they never got to that point. but <laughs> And that goes forward even more, you know, right up until World War Two, It was very much a... Uh, Heavily yeah. defended area, Dunster yeah. and Watchit, there's pillboxes that remain to show. Uh, the Haven site at Watchit was a very big uh, sort of army base used by American soldiers. They even had their own, very own airstrip there. And I've seen a photo just recently, I forget the name of the airplane, but they actually had a remote control airplane that they used to use for like target practice. Yeah. So, you know, I think we have to suspend that disbelief and really really try and kind of value them for the for the place that they've had and the importance and significance they've had significance they've had yeah and their importance yeah Yeah. but not only that these small places you know um you've got cleave hill which obviously has nods to ancient settlements and forts that would have had the same kind of purpose um 
you know, very much as a place of trying to withstand attack you know these other places that you know you can wander through and you can't imagine scenes of battle or or sieges and all of these other things playing out but we have so many things like that dotted across our landscape which speak of much more turbulent times of the need to defend and um, fortify against invaders Yeah, exactly. Because yeah. you said Cleve Hill, so that's where Dawes Castle was yeah. established, which was the Anglo-Saxon um, burr. And uh, yeah, unfortunately, that's on the cliff edge now, and some much of it has been lost to coastal erosion. But yeah. it, it's on that hill as well, where there used to be a chapel, and it's recorded that that's where St. Decamon was actually buried. But unfortunately, I think it was in the 1600s that that chapel literally fell off the edge of the cliff and was lost to sea. It's honestly, it's so fascinating. It's this wonderful, rich seam of history and all the other things that we've mentioned that's so fascinating. And um, we can't we can't kind of talk about folklore and history and ghost, you know, all of these things without also talking about some ghost law. And, you know, we've been talking about kind of this boom of industry and how busy the waterways and the railway line would have been with all of this new movement and business and industry and so on and so forth but i know that there is a there's some really interesting sightings and paranormal activity associated with the station and the railway lines isn't there that's that goes back to a particular collision doesn't it do you want to tell us about that and obviously some of the ghost law surrounding it yeah, so there was a crash on the actual mineral line. So there's the two lines that watch it. There's the main line, which is connected to the West Somerset Railway. Then you've got the mineral line, which um, uh, comes down from the Brendan Hills. Now, there was actually a head-on collision between two trains on the mineral line, uh, which resulted in a fatality. And uh, many people, so you can walk the mineral line today. And uh, many people have suggested that they've uh, seen a ghost and had strange experiences while walking along there. But one I find very interesting. In the 60s, um, a number of people actually recorded seeing what they uh, described as a phantom train uh, flying through Watchit Station. So that would be on the the main line, the West Somerset Railway line. Um, So yeah, I thought that was quite interesting. Unfortunately, there's not many details to the story, as is the case many times with uh, ghost sightings. Very often you just get this description of what they're seeing, but still interesting nonetheless. But it, I think it takes talking about it and it's starting to be documented and recorded and pulled together and then over time you get this bigger and bigger build of it, don't you? Yeah, but it is, it's so fascinating and again, it speaks to so much in terms of engineering and history that, you know, these accidents were quite common because these bits of engineering were new. So the safety features that we have today, you know, signals on, you know, being used as part of travel along these lines they didn't have them yeah and so again it's it kind of speaks to all those elements of change and engineering and these feats being very new and the the, the the evolution of that but then the impact again on local level in terms of accidents that really would have been quite newsworthy within the local community and of course yeah. then the the elements of that that remain with the community through some of the paranormal activity they experience and also the stories they tell of it. Again, which of it is true, which of it isn't true, what is experienced, it's it's 
documenting that, it's starting to piece some of that together. And it only takes enthusiastic investigators to start pooling those resources and putting it together and documenting it in folklorists that you get a bigger and bigger and bigger picture. But, you know, so much of that doesn't happen at local level. So it's great when you, you do have enthusiastic people who start that process. Yeah, definitely. And uh, fortunately, not to I looked into too into too much death, but uh, it probably would be worth me going along there and actually uh, taking some of the ghost, you know, devices along and seeing if I can establish some communication of some kind. It's fascinating, though. But it is so so unusual, and you know, I think I think we're all familiar with ghost law when it comes to railway accidents or stations or old lines that have since been abandoned and and things yeah. like that. But it's it's a stream of the paranormal that I don't think has had the same level of attention and investigation, partly because of the difficulty in being able to investigate those areas. I think. Mm-hmm. But also, do you think there's a stigma around it? The same way uh, people seem sometimes uh, a bit worried about telling people if they've seen, um, say, the ghost of an animal of some kind. I think there's a possibility and a, and a connection with. Take the example, for example, of the the phantom train. It, I think it kind of. I think it has similar nods with people who report phantom vehicles of some description, whether it's a car or a truck you know all these other these other accounts that you hear of on roads and things in different yeah. parts of the world i i think they do have it i think there is a degree of stigma attached to them of surely not really really someone's yeah, worried, then, you know, you know worried about what the next person is going to say um and it doesn't help because then people don't like to tell their story i had an interesting one recently someone was telling me they truly believe that they seen somebody riding along on a penny farthing i thought that'd be a fight to see wouldn't it but how is that any different to somebody experiencing a locomotive yeah. moving through? Yeah, no? it, I've had a very strange experience, and just put it this way: it was extremely pitch black. You couldn't see your hand in front of your face, mm. and I could hear horse hoofs. Mm. This was when I was much younger, and uh, to the point where, in my mind, I knew there was a horse in front of me, but I had to carry on walking up this lane. And I was uh, very worried about walking towards this horse, and uh, I just kept walking, and I never passed this horse. And to this day, I think, what did I hear? You know, it was very strange because there wasn't a horse there, but I definitely heard it. I think one of the other very significant elements about that kind of pool of of stories and um, accounts is the difficulty in actually experiencing it. If you think about a building, say, for example, a castle, a haunted inn, where you're getting that footfall, that traffic in and out all of the time, Um, Likelihood is at some point, someone is there at the right time, at the right moment to experience whatever it is that comes through either as a residual energy or an intellectual haunting of some description. Whereas if it's a location that's moving, that is over a much larger distance, like a road or like a old abandoned railway track line, the, the likelihood of you being there in that spot is far less likely than you going to your local pub because you have to be along that line in that location at the right time and so the circumstances I think are different as well you you don't use them as frequently as you do these others you don't visit them as frequently 
And again, so I, it's not it's not happening. It's just that it's not being witnessed by people. Is so does it? Yes. Yeah, so does it point to? Are we just missing some of these things that that happen? We're just not around to experience them. Do so we miss the sounds? Do we miss the noise of the train going through? Do we miss people wandering the line? Are we missing something just because we're not investigating these areas in the same way? Who knows? So that would imply, just based on what you said, that uh, you know there's something in anniversaries because, like you said, you have to be there at the right time, the right place to be able to witness it. And maybe that could explain why numerous people seen it at the same time because they were at the same at the right place at the right time. Um, and I don't well, think there's something in that. I had a really strange experience once, and uh, I'll keep it short. But basically, I was uh, in a graveyard doing an investigation, and uh, I was overwhelmed with a sense of mourning to the point there was tears coming down my face. Anyway, um, I had to get out of there. And it was actually the next day I looked onto Facebook and a local history group put a post on there saying it was that yesterday it was a 100-year anniversary of three children who had died in a, a lake adjacent to the uh, graveyard where we was. And at that moment, I thought the only way I could describe how I felt was a feeling of mourning. Mm. So, uh, I, think, I think the paranormal is a mixture of so many different things. And... Yeah, I, I, I do think some of it is very much down to being somewhere at the right time, especially when it comes to things like residual hauntings, you know, echoes of something that is replaying over and over again. Um, yeah, I, think right. I think this is part of the trouble with it. When people aren't haven't uh, experimented in that area, they can have a go, but because in their mind, they have an idea of what they're trying to seek. And when they don't find it, they you know, they've, they've had their answer. But yeah. the thing is, they need to look at it differently and actually realise it's a paranormal, is it just one thing? No. You know, there's many theories and I think there's truth in a number of them. But also be mindful of the fact that a lot of these locations when it comes to railway tracks and lines and stations, because they have been in use and think about the safety measures in place about, you know, don't go in this area, the fencing, the safety measures that have been put in place to avoid further accidents on the line. It has meant that access to them has been restricted you know again it it limits the amount of traffic doesn't it so again is it down to how they've previously been used and in use that again has reduced the number of experiences yeah i see what you mean yeah because and this goes back to what we were saying earlier about you know 200 years ago it would have been hustle bustle whereas mm-hmm. now there's not really anybody there yeah no it's an interesting theory isn't it it's all fascinating. It's seriously all fascinating. Yeah, it, you know, people haven't seen it for a while. Is that because it hasn't happened or just, yeah, it's happened lots of times, just nobody was there to see it? Yeah. An interesting thought. But it is just, again, it's, it's, as I was mentioning, it's just one of those aspects of, of paranormal reporting and encounters that I think we all hear of, but we don't necessarily have much experience of or can really identify where those are. And so it is really interesting when you do have something in a location, because there's an opportunity, I think, to maybe do some you know, further inquiry and research and digging into it, because who knows what you kind of uncover along the way and what could be going on that we're just missing out on. Missing out on. No? Yeah, like you say, that could be something you're missing out on entirely, or it could be mm. something that adds to the story that you already know about an area or an event in that area or something like that. Honestly, it's always so, so incredible to talk to you. I mean, just think about the different topics that we've covered. We've talked about. (laughs) Yeah, we've 
only just touched the surface of what, do you know what I mean? I honestly feel like we could do a week-long podcast and we still wouldn't even be near uh, covering everything. But But this is why I think people really do have such wonderful opportunities to go and explore places if they're so inclined and, and go on tours, go on, you know, Go for a visit. Go for a day out. Yeah, get an old map, have a look at an old map, read an old book that's 100 years old and just embrace it and see what you can find out about your local area because there's so much there. When when you look, there's just so much to find. And And who knows what you might find in your local church. You You might come across a pew that's connected with a family. There might be a connection with, you know, something else in the village that you live in. Um, an event who knows what is going on that you've walked past yeah. time and time and time again and also like that finding out about that pun that's shown me that it doesn't matter how much you know about a certain story there's always much more to learn because as you know there's many different very vari- uh, variants of the florence windham story um i thought i'd read all the stories and i didn't think there was much more to learn when i read in that book about the pew end was amazing but when i actually found it just that was an eye-opener to me because i realized what is out there really relating to that story that people aren't even aware of, you know? What else yeah. to discover? Who knows what else is, like you mentioned, that is there that hasn't been connected to it, that is more evidence that points to something, or, yeah. or doesn't. Again, it's just all the mystery of history, isn't it? And it's it's literally all there, yeah. hoping to I be revealed. Yeah, sometimes you don't need to find the exact answer. It's the journey you take to get there that is the... Um, the it's a magical um, bit, right? Yeah, exactly. And what, what's the point in doing it otherwise? You've got to have fun with it and enjoy it. Um, Do we want to necessarily know for certain if Florence Wyndham died and came back to life or had a medical emergency or didn't and there was nothing to the story at all? No, it would take away from the mysticism, wouldn't it? And then you, you it, w- it wouldn't carry on. It would be like, okay, that's done and dusted. Yeah. We know about that now. Um, but it's the fact we don't know that keeps it going, I think. And that's really folklore, isn't it? Really? Yeah, all folklore and myths and legends. But also, I think, to some extent, you know, the ghost or the way that we can it, it examine some of that paranormal activity, yeah. whether we can make those connections with history or not, even if there is no thread that we can find that connects it to some possible event or person, still the fact that that story exists is fascinating to understand why it was created. What it was showing for the people at the time that they created this story to fill this gap that was left by the absence of those people involved. You know, again, just so there's something very real about it, I think, that is really interesting. So... Well, a perfect example is St. Eckerman, you you know, I think we all know he didn't actually have his head cut off and um, place it back on and, you know, go back to normal. But to me, that doesn't take away the value of the story. I find it just fascinating, even though I know it obviously didn't happen, because it still says a lot about the people at the time. And again, it probably speaks about what I was saying earlier with the other story of St. Karanatok. It's speaking about uh, good overcoming evil, you know. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, again, all it's making the connections with why those stories were so powerful that they lasted that I think is the is the quite revealing aspect. Because it's not about it's not necessarily about kings and queens and the politics of the gentry. It's about what was being fed down to the people at very local levels. 
or being yeah. experienced by the very local community at yeah, Grand. And what, what held enough value to be seen as important enough to actually carry it over? For them, yeah. Because yeah. they were they were the real mass population, weren't they? They were, um, yeah. And they and kept it going. Yeah, even if this was written in a pamphlet, unless it was uh, carried on in oral tradition, I would have thought that pamphlet would have disappeared and been forgotten about. But like you said, it's the fact that it's been held in that collective memory mm. because of its importance in the hearts and minds of people, as opposed to just talking about the event when it happened. You know, and as we discussed, it could go back even a hundred years before that, which makes it even more mysterious, but there we go. So, yeah, I, I encourage anybody who's listening, if they haven't listened to the um, previous podcast that you've been on where you talk about um, Dunster, you know, you can find all those links on the website. You'll be able to find Bobby on there. So you'll be able to find all episodes that he's been part of and the blog and so on and so forth. Um, and obviously find out the information on the website or in the podcast description notes to, to come along and take part in some of your tours and your, you know, the things that you offer to explore yeah. some of these locations we've been talking about. Um, you know, I very much encourage people to do that or do that on your lo- at local level near where you are or somewhere else. Just get out and explore. Find some and if anybody to- comes across anything regarding Florence Wyndham that we haven't already discussed, I'm sure we would both love to uh, hear that or see it even. Right, too and, right. And if you want to see the photo of the pew end as well, just to point out, you can find that on my website. I've done a little write-up regarding her story and included the picture of the pew end there. So uh, have a look at that. We all it's so intriguing. So thank you so much for coming and talking again so passionately about another area that you love so much it's it's very much appreciated no problem at all i appreciate the opportunity to uh, talk about the history of the area and i will say goodbye to everybody listening bye everybody bye bye